1 Kings chapter 8. Tonight we'll be reading verses 22 through 53. First Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. This is the word of our God. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what I promised, you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying... You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication. O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day toward the place of which you said, my name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when you pray toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath, and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people, Israel, are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflicted them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people, Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, 
when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people, Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward this temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, For they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. That all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as you do your people Israel. And that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, And they take them captive to the land of the enemy, far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they are carried captive, and repent, and make supplication to you in the land to which the uh, land of those who took them captive, saying, We have sinned and done wrong, we have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart, and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you and grant them compassion before those who took them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel, to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord Yahweh. So far in the reading of God's word, let's pray. Lord, our Lord, we thank you for a recording of this prayer for us that we might learn from the wisdom of Solomon, that we might appreciate what we have in prayer. 
and that we might take confidence in the God who you are. For we pray here to you in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this long prayer of Solomon's, it's a very powerful prayer. There are a lot of interesting themes in it. It starts with 2 Samuel 7, again. Uh, But we won't spend a lot of time on that today. 22 through 26, the covenant is remembered and the prayer is begun, this dedication of the temple. Solomon begins by recalling God's reputation is as a covenant God who remembers, verse 23. It begins with, Uh, God's people called to remember the covenant, 23 through 24, and God entreated to continue in covenant faithfulness, 25 and 26. It centers on the covenant, but from there it goes on to a focus about the temple itself. God in his covenant with David had promised that Solomon would build a temple. And here this temple is. But all of a sudden, as we think about the temple, it's almost as if Solomon reflects in prayer on an absurd riddle. Whether it's something that has plagued him the whole time he built the temple, or whether it's something he's only realizing right now as he stands there in the presence of God's people, there seems to be a riddle in the mind of Solomon. He has built this temple, um, but can God even dwell there? We think with Solomon here of prayer's destination. And as we read this prayer of Solomon's, he keeps talking about praying in the temple and toward the temple in 27 through 53. And yet, Verse 27, Solomon reflects, this is an impossible thing that God could dwell in this little shack which Solomon has built when God cannot be contained by the universe itself. That is an extreme riddle, isn't it? It's a paradox. The God who is bigger than all the galaxies. Solomon reflects, had me build this little stone building. And how can this be a blessing? How can this be a reality? How can this be, how can this be real? It's the riddle. It's a riddle that um, I was remembering just this afternoon, a, a Rich Mullins song where he struggles with this concept of God in heaven and our prayers down below. He, he sang, Do you who live in heaven hear the prayers of those who live on earth? Do you who live in radiance hear the prayers of those of us who live in skin? Do you who live in eternity hear the prayers of those of us who live in time? I'm not, not trying to bash Rich Mullins or his very passionate song, but he, he, the con- the chorus line of the song is, I guess you're just up in heaven trying to play hard to get. Well, Solomon comes to a rather different conclusion uh, than, than God trying to play hard to get. Uh, so, uh, Solomon comes to the conclusion that the riddle of this house that God has had him make for dwelling in, even though he can't dwell 
in the entire universe it's not big enough. Solomon's conclusion is then this temple has a, a purpose. It's a purpose of being a, a conduit for prayer and a purpose of being an aid to faith. And this is where I, I drew us to the sacraments earlier. That The temple isn't technically an Old Testament sacrament, but there's a sense in which it has a lot of, uh, in Solomon's prayer here, a lot of reflection of what, what the Bible teaches regarding the sacraments. We talked, as we confessed there in the, uh, in the Confession of Faith, about how in the sacrament this earthly thing is used interchangeably to talk about the spiritual reality. And Solomon kind of lays the temple out like that here. He says they pray to the temple, but what does he say? When they pray in the temple, here in heaven your dwelling place. When they pray toward the temple, here in heaven your dwelling place. The further he gets in the prayer, the further from the temple the people seem to be. Did you notice that? The first couple of thoughts, they're praying in the temple, and then they're praying toward the temple, and then they're in captivity, and they're praying towards the city where the temple happens to be. But in each case, this idea of the the temple that Solomon built is a conduit for prayer coming to God the Father in heaven, his true dwelling place. And so gazing at the temple is an aid to their faith in prayer. We're praying toward the temple, remembering that God is dwelling with his people. And so we have boldness to pray here at the temple or toward the temple with the thought that God will hear us in heaven. And so that the temple itself was not the goal. Can you imagine building this temple and then the day that you go to dedicate it, the king standing up and saying, but really this temple cannot house God. Solomon wants the people to realize that the temple is not the end thing. It's not the destination. It's simply God condescending to our weak faith so that, I shouldn't say our weak faith, their weak faith, so that they had something tangible to remind them of the Emmanuel principle that God dwells with his people and providing this temple as a conduit for their faith in prayer so that they might direct their prayer to where God dwells and through this this, uh, outward shell, God in heaven would hear. Solomon sees it very sacramentally here, and that's, I think, a good thing. I think Solomon's very dedication is a bit of an aside. Solomon's dedication prayer here stands as a a sharp uh, challenge to all these evangelical mindsets that think the building of a physical temple is so important again. Because Solomon is saying all along, the temple was just to get you uh, in prayer to come before God. And the New Testament makes it very clear that we have one through whom we come into the presence of God in prayer. Indeed, Solomon anticipates him. He reflects on God's promise that there would be one of David's lines sitting on a throne in the presence of God forever. We no longer have this need for the temple because we have Christ, the temple, he said, that if you tear down, I will rebuild in three days. 
he said, speaking of his own body. We have no need of the temple. The Jews have no more need of the temple because Jesus is in heaven. The temple was an Old Testament sacramental pointing ahead to what Christ accomplishes for the people in prayer. We have Hebrews saying, he lives ever to intercede for us. It's the same thing, only of course better because we're gazing direct instead of at some building. Well, this is uh, Solomon's thought on the destination of prayer. And uh, let me just run really quickly uh, through uh, the examples he gives in this prayer. There are seven of them. I'm going to do it really quickly and then go to a second point. But um, Solomon requests that God in heaven will give special attention to the prayers at or toward the temple. And here are his examples. That prayers for justice would be heard by God in heaven. Verses 31 and 32. That the temple, when they come to, to God in prayer and come there for justice, God would hear their cries at the temple. It's a place for justice. It's also a place for uh, repentance in time of war, verses 33 and 34. Specifically, uh, war brought about because they have sinned, and so God is disciplining them as his sons. Notice 33, uh, when the enemy, defeated before the enemy, because they have sinned against you. So it's in time of war, of discipline from God. By the way, that would be a time that you might expect God to not listen to prayer. You've sinned. You're acknowledging it. He's disciplining you. Will he hear you cry out? God in heaven, hear, even as they wail to you in the middle of their discipline. Hear and forgive. I'm getting ahead of myself there. Uh, a third uh, example he gives is a place for uh, repentance in time of drought. Verses 35 and 36. Fourth, a place for repentance in time of famine, plague, siege, etc. No, notice that three of those in a row are a place for repentance in time of. And he tries to cover all the different ways in which God might discipline his people when they are unrepentant. In fact, verses uh, 33 through 40, in essence, detail a big chunk of Deuteronomy. Solomon is looking at Deuteronomy and saying, God says that if my people sin... I will do the following as acts of discipline. Solomon says, not if this happens. Notice the prayer. When this happens, God, when we do all the things you tell us not to in Deuteronomy, it will happen. When it happens, hear from heaven and forgive. Fifth, a place for the nations, verses 41 through 43. Isn't that amazing? Solomon is an evangelical Christian. When the nations come, what does he say? Cast them away. This is not a temple for them, God. No, Solomon says, God, in front of everyone, by the way, the whole nation of Israel hears this prayer. God, in dedicating this temple, we're asking 
that when a pagan foreigner comes seeking you, you'll hear them. I wonder how many people were upset in the middle of this prayer. Or I wonder how many people in that moment thought, this isn't what I thought the temple was for. Thought this temple was about separating us out from those pagans. And Solomon's saying it's a place where the pagans can come to pray. Remember what Christ says about the temple. My house is a house of prayer for the nations. Actually, Christ is referencing something Solomon says on this very day of dedication. Sixth, it's a place for, a, I didn't know how to phrase this one, a strong captain, 44 and 45. Uh, Solomon, I, I don't know how to summarize that one. 44 and 45, God, when there's war, be with us. Uh, and then seventh, a place for the remnant, verses 46 through 53. Uh, he covers all these things. Notice what he doesn't cover. God, on the ordinary, boring old Tuesday morning when it's sunny out and we're all working in the fields and it's a nice, pleasant day and we had a nice breakfast with our family and nice devotion time and everything's going well in the world and no one's particularly sick. God, then when we pray to you, hear our prayer. So Solomon assumes that we all know that on those days, God is listening as we pray. Why? Be- because we assume that God is listening if everything's going right and well and comfortably. Solomon gives seven examples of times when we might think that God is not listening to us. And to each of them, he says very clearly, God, please hear from heaven. Well, that's prayer's destination. God in heaven. They pray toward the temple or at the temple, but the destination of the prayer is heaven above. And then I also want to look at these verses in terms of prayer's purpose. This will be a little faster than the last section because we've built the stage for this with Solomon's uh, examples. But prayer's purpose in these same verses. We could say generally that the purpose of prayer in general, not just this prayer, but all prayer to God, is that God will hear. That God will hear his people. And Solomon emphasizes that God does hear his people. But here, over and over, Solomon is emphasizing a specific thing that is the purpose of these prayers. And that is, of course, forgiveness. Notice just some of these. Draw them out from those seven examples. Verses 28 through 30, especially starting off the request, before the examples start coming up, Solomon prays, Regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God. Listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, but don't just stop with hearing this dedication prayer, God. I'm inserting that. That's not in the text. Uh, He goes on, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, my name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place, and may hear the uh, the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear forgive. When you hear, forgive. 
Solomon assumes that there's never a time when we're coming in prayer where we are not also in need of forgiveness. If, if only that was uh, something we were more sure about. That there's never a time when we come in prayer when we are not in need of God's forgiveness. Solomon puts that special emphasis. And then he continues with that train of thought in pretty much every example. Verse 34, when talking about the issue of um, repentance in time of war, he says, Hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. Verse 36, when talking about uh, the time of drought, he says, Hear in heaven, forgive the sins of your servants, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given. Isn't that interesting? It's not just, it's never just, God, stop this circumstance. Send rain. He says first, God, forgive and teach us wisdom. Teach us the way to walk that we didn't have. In fact, Solomon is uh, making a comparison, I think. He's going to do this more explicitly in a moment with another example. But in this example of drought, I think he's making an implied comparison. Why... Why would God send drought at certain times in his people's lives? Because they are already enduring spiritual drought. He he says, teach them the good way in which they should walk. The idea is that their, their lives are dry. They're not walking according to his laws. They're not walking in his ways. Those are the good paths. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord And it's like the tree planted beside rivers of water. Why? Because he delights in the law of the Lord. The law of God brings a refreshing river into our lives so that our lives are green and beneficial and useful. But when we're disregarding God's law, when we're disregarding his ways, our lives are dry. And so Solomon says, when you send drought, presumably we've been ignoring your ways. So teach us and then give us the water too, but teach us your ways. Um, verse 39, when talking about uh, the, the etc. example, right? You have famine, plague, uh, worms, siege, anything else. Uh, but notice the language he uses there. Here he's more explicit with the parallel between the, the judgment and the, the sin. He says in 39, here in heaven, your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to his ways, whose heart you know, for you know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days which they live in the land which you gave to their fathers. I think I, I started a verse too late. Verse 38, when each one knows the plague of his own heart. So plagues have come upon the land, Solomon says, but there were already plagues in this land. You you think this is just happenstance that locusts devoured all your crops? Your hearts already had locusts devouring. Your sin was devouring you. So God, when you bring the locust, the worm, the, the famine, the pestilence, 
the the enemies who are besieging your cities so that everything is burnt over and scorched. May you hear those. And it's interesting, he also qualifies. It might be all the people or it might just be one. If there's one who actually learns the lesson and says, God, the whole land is being destroyed because my heart is a plague with sin, then God, hear that one person and forgive and give according to your Uh, to each one according to their relationship with you, in essence, is what he's saying. And then notice especially verses 46 and 50 in terms of uh, the forgiveness motif. 46 is at the beginning of the the last uh, section, talking about the remnant who have been taken out of Israel. And verse 50 is towards the end of that. So 46, they're in exile. When they sin against you, for there is no one... Who does not sin? Solomon's assessment of the book of Deuteronomy. Oh, we don't have a chance. There's no one who doesn't sin, God. We will break the book of Deuteronomy. We will incur the the curses that you pronounced and that our fathers said amen to at that ceremony so long ago. Verse 46. For there is no one who does not sin when they sin against you and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy and they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near. Verse 50, forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you and grant them compassion before those who took them captive that they may have compassion on them. I find it interesting that Solomon does not here say Bring them back to the temple. The remnant will be brought back to the temple, and plenty of prophets will declare that after Solomon's day. But Solomon doesn't actually ask for that here. What does he ask for? He says, when they repent and they pray, give them the compassion of the pagan ruler who took them captive. Because you are compassionate on your people. May the pagan dictator, whoever, who took them away, also show them compassion there where they're living. Solomon doesn't seem to think the most important thing is to get back to the temple. The most important thing is to get back to God. Forgive. Here in heaven. Oh, they're way off far or near. They're way off in Babylon. By rivers weeping and groaning and mourning and being mocked. And Ezekiel looks up one day and there's God. Because the God of heaven cannot be contained in this temple which Solomon has built. God, when they cry out to you, hear and respond. So the purpose of prayer is forgiveness. I think there's one other major purpose here that Solomon would have us learn as well. This prayer's purpose and the purpose of all of our prayer ought to be that we learn the fear of the Lord. Notice this just running through these verses quickly as well. Verse 40. That they may fear you all the days they live in the land which you gave to their fathers. Verse 43. Here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you, that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. There's evangelical fear, right? 
fear for the nations, that they might come to know him as well. Verse 32, there's the need to fear God in his judgment and justice. Uh, Verse um, 45, uh, the nations are to fear uh, the power of God going out with his people. So the fear of the Lord is also essential here as well. Of course, we will not truly repent before the Lord as we ought if we have no fear of the Lord before our eyes. And so, as God did of old, God gave drought and famine and sword and pestilence to teach them the fear of his name. Having learned it, they repent. And having repented, God hears and forgives. That seems to be Solomon's thought process. Well, we we don't have the temple as a, a kind of sacramental thing anymore. But again, we don't need it, do we? We have Christ. We have Christ, and through him, we have access to the Heavenly Father. He will hear Better than a visual symbol of the temple, which itself, as we've noted about a month ago, we noted that the temple is set up to look like the Garden of Eden. If you really think through that well enough, you might come to the conclusion that as a conduit to make you think of praying to God in heaven, there's still the concept of the cherubim keeping you from him. But... The reality, Christ, the true temple, through him, we know that the Father will always hear us. Why? Because in him, the Father is well pleased, perfectly pleased. So if he is uh, the conduit, the deliverer of our prayer, the intercessor of our prayer, the Father will hear and will forgive He pleads the merit of his own blood. The Father will hear and he will forgive. And so we need to grow in the fear of him. I think we also should contemplate just momentarily. I'm going to plant the seed and let you think more about it. So that the New Testament doesn't only talk about Christ as the temple, but also talks about us as the temple. The church is the temple, the spiritual reality that the temple pointed towards. Well, that should teach us some holy reverence, shouldn't it? When we think about all these things that Solomon has said about how God receives prayer, and when we contemplate that Christ says that the the temple is to be a house of prayer for the nations, there, there are a number of things we could take away from that. One is that here at the church the church universal of which our congregation is a part, the world ought to find a place they can go. Think of how Solomon described the pagan coming to the temple. It was like someone desperate who had heard of the name of God coming for sanctuary to ask an impossible request. And Solomon says, hear and give what they request. Well, that ought to be the the church when the world is desperate, when they hear of the great deeds of God, when they come looking for a place where God will hear them. They ought to find a place 
where they realize when I am here, I am with people whom God hears in a place that God is paying attention to where God showers forth his love. The church ought to be a clear representation of a people who believe God has heard them. It also ought to instill in us a great reverence for what we're doing in worship. Here we are below. The Shekinah glory has not descended into this room with us. Certainly, that would be better than these fluorescent lights. But, God in heaven hears. He hears what goes on in his temple in a special way. We come in from our brokenness. He hears us all the time, but we come in from our brokenness into corporate worship And we ought to believe that there's a special blessing in that. That God hears and that God forgives. That God blesses and works within the body of Christ and in the context of worship. Of course, I realize you all believe because you're here at five o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. But what a thing to always have before our eyes. Rich Mullins sang, and I think he was really, even though he had that concept I I complained about earlier, hard to get, I think he was really getting to the same point as Solomon because he did make this emphasis. You who live in radiance, do you hear the prayers of those of us who live in skin? Well, of course he does. Because he took on our skin and suffered and knew all that our skin knows and in his perfected glorified skin he is in heaven the conduit that we have